Welcome back to Soapbox. It's a show about strong opinions on trivial topics. I'm Jack Crawford. Soapbox. It's a show about strong opinions on trivial topics. Thanks for hanging out. Um, I don't really have a whole lot of an intro recording this on the 4th of July. Hopefully it goes up later today. So happy 4th. And uh, to kick things off, let's talk about the Great British Bake Off or Great British Baking Show, whichever you prefer to call it. I think the names are interchangeable. I don't actually remember if I've talked about this before, so forgive me if I have, but the Great British Baking Show is what got me into baking, but as a work of television, I think it's the greatest competition show and arguably one of the greatest shows of all time because it's 10 episodes, every season is 10 episodes, 12 bakers, one leaves every week, and then at the end, there's three finalists, and one of them is named uh, Champion, or Greatest Amateur Baker in Britain. And it's a fantastic show. Like, when you think reality competition shows in the U.S., you think, if you think cooking shows, you think very, um, a lot of fire, a lot of countdown clocks, a lot of, it's very intense. It's a very aggressive sort of, um, almost more, it feels more like an endurance sort of competition where you have to, you're racing against the clock to make something really complicated and cool. And while those shows are great, you know, Chopped or Master Chef or whatever, Bake Off is more like, hey, we're all here to bake. We're all competing against each other, but we're really competing against ourselves to make the best thing we personally can, which I think is really refreshing because by the end of it, you know, in the last episode, they share pictures from like, you know, the few months after the competition and all of the bakers still hang out. They become friends because they basically spend 10 weeks hanging out and, uh, you know, getting to know each other. And, you know, they're obviously competing against each other, but the focus is really on making the best bake possible, which is, of course, admirable and is a lot of fun to watch. The structure of the show, each episode has a focus, bread, cake, pastry, uh, patisserie, uh, chocolate, caramel, and then there's three bakes. The first bake is the signature. Each baker gets to prep that, and they're doing something unique within a certain parameter. If it's bread, say it's everyone has to make, you know, three types of twisted bread or something like that with different flavors. 
Then, and that's judged. Then they do the technical. No one knows what the technical is beforehand. They're all given the same recipe with that's a minimal, doesn't have a whole lot of instructions. Same recipe, same ingredients, and are just told to go. That's one of the most fun ones because sometimes, you know, everyone's like, oh, I know what this is, and sometimes nobody's heard of it. And, you know, you get to see something that you may have never heard of and may never see in a bakery, but you get to see it made there. And then the third is the showstopper, where, you know, it's similar to the signature, but typically on a higher scale, usually a larger time bank, and usually the bakes are a little bit more, I mean, not impressive, but a little more magnificent, maybe, just like, you know, if it was three buns before, if you make three types of twisted bread, now you're making a bread sculpture, that sort of thing, that sort of variety. But, uh, oh, and the show is judged by a couple of bakers, currently Paul Hollywood and Prue Leith, who are both fantastic. And there's two presenters who are typically, uh, and they're currently Noel Fielding and Sandy something. But, um, and basically they sort of usher in bakers and give them guidance and all that sort of thing. And, I mean, it's, it's like watching the most soothing videos. It it falls into this umbrella of content Bake Off does where you know you can watch it and you know that by the end of it you'll probably have learned something. You're probably gonna feel really good because it's there's no negativity in it, which is really nice. But there is still that edge of oh there's a ticking clock, oh there's a competition. Which is a really nice combination and it's uh, the only show I've ever heard of that's been compared to it was that um, that craft competition show that was on uh, American TV with Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman. But um, those have been compared, but there's not much of that on American TV and not much of it at all in the world. Which is a shame because, it, you know, I'd much rather go sit down and watch something if I know that at the end of it, a, I'm not going to have a bunch of like, you know, suspenseful commercial cuts, commercial breaks right before the reveal of someone getting sent home. I'm not going to have, you know, you know, the drama will be, oh, I forgot a piece of parchment in the cake, not, oh, we got in a screaming match over the arugula or something like that. And I mean, sort of positive but still interesting and not just sort of hypnotic content like that I think is really nice you know things like um, the podcast wonderful or you know YouTube channels like I think Bon Appetit fills a void very similar to the Bake Off void where you're learning but you're also having fun and it's not too overwhelmingly YouTuber-y because they're professional chefs or Kiwami, the knife maker. That's another great one. Uh, content like that is really refreshing. And uh, the world needs more of it. And hopefully Soapbox fills a void similar, but not quite the same, of course, because I don't have a good accent or, you know, 
Call Hollywood. Oh well. of great content that's refreshing and different I, I wanted to do a little trip down memory lane uh, in terms of radio because while podcasts have of course totally superseded radio in my life and in many people's lives uh, I think part of that you know rise has been some of my favorite radio shows ended at about the same period that I started listening to a lot of podcasts. Or if they didn't end, they you know, transitioned into new formats or got new hosts or things like that. But uh, I just wanted to reminisce about NPR for a minute. And I've got a little list of things to reminisce. First off, I mean, the great car talk. I mean, like that's still on the air, but... I never know when it's on, and, uh, you know, there's something so nice about just turning on the radio, and, oh yeah, there's click and clack, and get that good car advice, uh, I mean, those guys were brilliant, um, what, I mean, seriously, brilliant mechanical minds they had, uh, like, honestly, that, they were, they are an American institution, and that show was the epitome of great, weird NPR radio. Because who wouldn't think that a syndicated car repair show would make it into the 21st century? I wouldn't. I If I hadn't, you know, grown up listening to it. But, uh, good old click and clack. Uh, another one that I think still exists, but it's not quite the same format, is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Oh, wait, wait, don't tell me. Best game show. One of the best game shows out there. Uh, all these old comedians and stuff, and they'd have random guests, and I don't really remember, the, honestly, the format too well, but I remember the uh, the way that, you know, it would it featured a lot of news, because it was on NPR. So it was like, uh, you know, what who was mentioned in this headline and it would take the name out of the headline or, and because it was almost all comedians, it would be a lot of, you know, riffing on people or, you know, discussing different news events in a really funny and informative way. And especially growing up, seeing that sort of humor before I, you know, before watching the Daily show or, you know, reading much news at all, it was really fun. It was like, oh, there, there's a fun way to do news and get information. But it was a great show. Um, I don't even remember what you won, if you were on the winning team, to be honest. But great show. Um, Peter Sagal and uh, I can't remember who the announcer was. But another great show that, while it might still be on, is definitely not quite the same as it was seven years ago but the final one that I wanted to reminisce about because I know this one is off the air and is hard to find like I it used to have a podcast feed and I think they took it down the Prairie Home Companion but not just all of Prairie Home Companion because if you ever listen to it or if you never listen to it 
think basically um, sort of a Grand Ole Opry type thing where very 50s, very like, we're going to go out and we're going to play some folk music and then, oh my goodness, didn't mean to hit that. We're going to go out and play some folk music and then you're going to come out and tell a story and then you're going to come out and play some country music and then we're going to do a skit and very classic radio, very uh, retro, but obviously it was, you know, ended four years ago or something like that when uh, Garrison Keillor started a great writer, one of my favorites, uh, when he retired. And it didn't end, it transitioned and it has a different name and a different front man and I haven't really listened to it because what I really liked about the show was Garrison Keillor. And what Garrison Keillor had that no one I've ever listened to since was he had this ability to get on the mic and talk and you could just listen to him basically ramble about a made-up town called Lake Wobegon, his hometown, where it was always a quiet week and where the men were strong. Wait, what is it? The women were strong, the men were good-looking, and all the kids were well-behaved or something like that. I can't believe I don't remember that. I'm going to live Google it because, I mean, that that's an iconic line. Lake Whoa, big gun tagline. Google. Doo -doo. The men, the women are strong. <laughs> all the men are good looking, and all the women are above average. I mean, and he would just ramble for 15 minutes, and he wouldn't script it. He didn't have a writer. He would, you know, he might write down some notes about what he wanted to talk about beforehand, but uh, he would just tell this story from the top of his head, from this cast of characters he developed over the 20 years, 30 years that he did like Wobegon. And it was so impressive because it was like, um, it was like if you took Welcome to Night Vale and took out the Twilight Zone or something like that, like just this focus on, you know, the small things, sort of the uh, trivial topics, if you will. And, um, I mean, so soothing to listen to. That was the first podcast, one of the first podcasts I really ever listened to. And I fell asleep to it. Like, I would play it when I went to bed for probably three years. Because, I mean, A, he was a great radio personality. His voice was incredible. And B, his, his, um, his way of storytelling was so meditative and... consistent and funny and but funny in this way where you know you listen to it and you go huh but you wouldn't be cracking up and you'd you know drift further into sleep for me most of the time because it was so so soothing but uh, it's a shame now you know you, uh, radio itself is so tricky now like if you have the radio on somewhere, people are just going to be like, oh, put on the music because they won't have ads and it won't be, you can choose what's on. And that's really hard to compete with. And while some excellent NPR programming is also a podcast, things like Bullseye or Radio Lab or um, 
those might be the only two I know. Bullseye on radio. I don't know. I don't know. Other things. There's definitely other shows that are pod- really great podcasts and also on the radio. You know, there's not a ton of that anymore because, you know, you can't start with radio anymore and go to podcasts. But, you know, NPR is still a great place. And if you had to get your news, get some fresh air, get some Terry Gross on, uh, I think she's still on the air. I hope she's still on the air. She's uh, iconic as well. But, yeah, NPR. And before we get on with the strong opinions and or trivial topics, let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. So, for our video game corner this week, video game corner. started playing this game actually the day I recorded my last episode but I wasn't it's a tricky game to explain simply and to someone who hasn't played it because it's a whole new genre for me and that is the genre of auto chess which little background on auto chess basically the first big game was Dota auto chess it was a mod for Dota 2 which is, if you don't know, sort of like League of Legends, sort of in that genre. And basically, Auto Chess let you take pieces, t- take characters from Dota, and playing, uh, you're in a game with seven other people. And you set up your pieces, and you try and make your pieces, it's on a chessboard. See, it's tricky to describe. And basically, the, the core mechanics of any auto chess game, because there's now three major ones, is that it's on a chessboard, basically eight by eight tiles. Each turn, you get to place your pieces, your characters, your soldiers, whatever you want to call them. You get to place those in whatever order you want on your half of the board. And each turn, you get to buy upgrades, you get to buy new characters, you might get a chance to get a new item that you can equip to one of those characters. And then when the actual game starts, when you are put up against your opponent, you have no control. Once the game starts, wherever you've placed your characters, they just fight. And it's sort of a luck thing at that point, but there's skill to how do you upgrade your characters? How do you place them? What combinations of characters do you have and what bonuses you get therein? So there's this, you know, this intricacy to the setup and then once it starts, you have no control. But that's sort of the core mechanic of the auto chess genre. But I don't play Dota auto chess because a couple weeks ago at E3, uh, Auto Chess announced, the modders, the people who made the game mode, announced that they were taking it solo. They were going to make it their own game. And Dota is made by 
Valve, who also makes Steam, uh, the big online game marketplace. And so they were like, hey, we're taking this separate. We're not going to uh, have it on, you know, it's not going to be a part of Dota anymore. We are separating it. Uh, and the kicker was not only were they separating it from the game made by Valve, they were separating it from the store owned by Valve. And they were making Auto Chess and Epic Games exclusive. Pretty big, you know, screw you to Steam to Valve, who had, you know, sort of been their launching point, but whatever. Uh, Dota, anticipating this, had made their own version called Underlords, which they also announced, and League of Legends, a the competitor to Dota, had also developed their own version called Teamfight Tactics. So all of a sudden, in like the last month, you went from one game in this sort of niche genre to three games in this really addicting, like really popular genre that's all over Twitch. And uh, I personally play Dota Underlords because frankly, when I was looking into it, that's what all my friends play. Shout out to Liam. Uh, double shout out to Liam actually because he not only got me into Underlords, he also is the first person to buy Soapbox merch. So thanks for that, bud. But, um, Liam, who you may know, he was my first guest as well. Um, what else was it again? Oh yeah, Underlords. And basically, the, the key strategies in Underlords are twofold. Threefold. First, where you place your pieces on the board. Just so that you can optimize how they you know, how they maneuver, how they get in position against the enemy. And, you know, you don't want your fighters to be trapped behind your ranged people. You don't want your close range behind your long range. Sort of elementary strategy, stuff like that. But that's part one of the strategy. Part two is the combinations of classes that you use because each piece has, you know, different attributes. You know, one will be a primordial assassin. One will be a, you know, a um, a druid with a barbarian twist or something like that. One will be a, I don't know, there's a robotic sniper sort of thing. So they usually all have a couple of different attributes to them. And different classes like that, different attributes when you hit a certain combination number, when you have two of them on the board or three or four, each of them gets a boost or one of them gets a boost based on that combination. So say you're doing druids. If you put up two druids, each of them is going to get a level stronger by virtue of, or if you put up two, one of them is going to get a level stronger. If you put up four, two of them will get a level stronger. And that way, you don't have to worry about upgrading them. You don't have to focus on that, but you can still get that excellent. Um, you know, you can get the upgrade by numbers, not by, you know, spending a whole bunch of your gold. And those combinations are a big part of what makes the game winnable because you can have more units on the board. You can have 10 to 8, but if the 8 stack has, you know, 4 druids and 
three defensive uh, units or something like that, and a sniper. That's a lot harder to defend. You know, that's a lot more ideal than having ten with no combinations and no, you know, special benefits. But the third part of the strategy, and this is where it gets kind of interesting, is it's this eight player round robin thing where every round you play someone different and when you lose you lose health everyone starts with 100 health in a typical round you could lose anywhere from 1 to 15 health say you know 15 is an especially bad loss 1 is typical or more typical and you know last one standing wins but uh, you know the it gets really intricate and makes it almost feel like poker because what you can see of your opponents is you can see how many units they can have. You can actually look and see what units they have. You can see how much gold they have. Uh, and they can see that about you. So there's this whole level of, you know, visibility where it's it's not just, you know, blind strategy and all of a sudden we're fighting. It's, I know what you're coming at me with and here's what I'm going to do to counter it. Here's what I'm going to do to try and get an edge. Here's, I know you have 25 gold. I have 50 gold. So, uh, you know, what does that mean? That means I can spend a little bit more right now because I, I know I can outspend you. Or uh, I'm going to let you try and outspend and I'm just going to hold on to my money because I have more health and can outlast you and get some more money and then sort of stomp you into the ground at a later date. So there's all this intricacy to that part of it, that sort of gamblery strategy to it that is really, really addicting, especially when you get down to, you know, final three and, you know, you have 40 gold and one person has 30 gold and one person has eight gold. And it's like, okay, who's going to win this? Do I... When do I want to start spending all of this? Do I start spending when I have 20 health? Or do I start spending when I have 5 health? At 5 health, you probably want to start spending because if you lose there, you're almost certainly done. But auto chess, and as a genre, I think is really, really interesting. And while my personal preference is Underlords, if you have any... Oh, and auto chess and Underlords are both available both on mobile and on PC, which is pretty neat because, um, you know, I, I was never going to play auto chess when it was just a part of Dota, but when it became, you know, a mobile game, that sort of was my very first introduction to it. But yeah, it's a cool genre. It's games are kind of long, but fun and it's a great game to play while you're doing something else. So what I like to do is if I'm cleaning my room or I'm reading a book or I'm, you know, figuring out my show notes for this episode, that sort of thing, um, I could have my game open and then, because what you do is you set up your pieces for 10 seconds, you make purchases, and then during the actual fight, there's nothing you can do. So you can just, you know, do something else it's not the best strategy but it's a fun game that you can actually multitask during which is hard to find because you really can't do that in most places Mm -hmm.
final topic today. Um, I saw Spider-Man Far From Home last night. No spoilers in this section. Don't don't worry. No spoilers. What I will say is I loved it. I thought it was a fantastic Spider-Man movie. But what I wanted to talk about was why is Spider-Man such a great hero? Why is like why have there now been three Spider-Man twos and seven solo Spider-Man movies in the last? 15 years, you know, and, you know, I'm, there's just so much compelling, so many compelling elements to the Spider-Man sort of story, you know, it has a lot of the great you know, hero tropes, you know, he, he loses his father figure, he, you know, undergoes these trials, he has this difficulty, he sort of hero's journey, typical stuff. But then what you add into that is sort of the gravity of, hey, I'm a hero, I have this ability, I can't tell anybody. And I need to use these powers for good without, you know, endangering those who I love. And that whole sort of element above the, I need to do good, I need to get over these trials and actually accomplish something that level of I need to do something anonymously with you know just as Spider-Man I'm not Peter Parker I'm not Miles Morales I'm Spider-Man is so so classic at this point and there's nothing like obviously there's other superheroes with secret identities but you know I get Batman but in a sort of post-Avengers world where you know, growing up it was like, oh, you're Bruce Wayne and then you're Batman. Okay, so you're not just a superhero all the time was sort of the concept that I understood growing up. But then it becomes, you know, oh, you are both Tony Stark and Iron Man very publicly. Oh, you are Captain America and Steve Rogers all the time publicly. And sort of this idea that at least in Marvel, at a certain level, you lose that privacy. You don't, you're always a hero. But Spider-Man still tries to have a separation there. At least in the movies, obviously, there's some comics where, you know, he has his own technology company and he's rivaling Stark and all that sort of stuff. And it's, everyone knows he's also Spider-Man. But, you know, the whole sort of double quest that Spider-Man's on between good and evil and also trying to be Spider-Man but not let anyone know he's Spider-Man is so unique, you know, like um, obviously other superheroes have secret identities, it's the whole thing with the Incredibles like that's the whole premise there, but Spider-Man maybe Spider-Man was the first, I don't know enough about comics history, but certainly one of the best and um oh spider-verse just came out on netflix i mean spider based content there's no shortage of it and i'll be honest i think tom holland is the best spider-man i think uh andrew garfield was bad and i think while toby mcguire had some good aspects 
he really captured the nerd part of it. I think Tom Holland actually plays a high school kid much better than Tobey Maguire did at that point in his career, especially considering he looks the exact same in Spider-Man as he does in, like, Great Gatsby, or, uh, that's the only Tobey Maguire movie I know besides Spider-Man. Uh, but, Spider-Man, great hero, great movie, highly recommend. Go check it out. Um, obviously I won't spoil anything, but it was a whole lot of fun, and it, um, it was a really, really great way to transition to a post-endgame MCU. You know what I mean? Where everything that happened at the end of Endgame, I don't want to spoil that either if you haven't seen it, has happened. Everybody's sort of coming to terms with it, and now, you know, what are we going to do in this new world that's been forged through the events of that movie? And... I cannot wait to hear what the next Marvel movie is because it's going to be a little while. I don't think there's another one for the rest of the year, which is tough. I'm just going to watch Spider-Verse on repeat on Netflix, I guess. this episode of Soapbox. It's a little bit short, but, you know, that's fine. That's my show. It can be as long as I want. I'm the god of this realm. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I wept because there were no more podcasts to conquer. Um, uh, this is Soapbox. Uh, follow the show at Soapbox with Jack, Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you can email the show, soapboxwithjack at gmail.com check out our merch teespring.com slash stores slash soapbox teespring.com slash stores slash soapbox we got some good stuff out there a couple hoodies if you like the album art we got that if you like the just the soapbox in that pink font we got that there's a cool it's the one i'm waiting on to get in is the swirl of the pink and green it sort of looks like watermelon it's very summery i was it was a lot of fun to make and uh, put out. So check those out. Shout out again to Liam for picking one of those hoodies up. And um, do I have anything else here? Oh, well, it's the 4th of July. Independence Day. Most patriotic day of the year. And, you know, obviously celebrate freedom. It's great to be free. And we're all free. But... If you're listening to this, you are probably free. Free to speak, free to gather, free to deny soldiers quarters. But, you know, keep in mind while my dog barks over me that not all in this country are free. You know, there are countless people being still imprisoned for things that are legal now. People who were imprisoned for under mandatory minimums who, you know, nowadays would just get a slap on the wrist or a fine. There are people who are being held in cages at our border for simply trying to come here and seek asylum. And there's a lot of cruelty in our nation. 
I'm assuming you're American. There's a lot of cruelty in this country. And while we are free, we shouldn't just be free to set off fireworks because we're free to make a difference and we're free to help those who are not. So happy 4th of July. Do something about it. And I'll talk to you next time.